Today's reading is James 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 27. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you have heard, then God will bless you for doing it. If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Thank you, Carol, and Lisa, thank you for leading us in prayer this morning. The Lord be with you. Thank you. I was, uh, <clears throat> you know, as a pastor, you need people to coach you. And uh, Janola Tatum caught me this morning uh, before the service and said, you know, when you were talking last week about trials and stuff like that, wouldn't, wouldn't it be a good idea to kind of encourage people to go for prayer because the Lord is speaking to them about some of those things? That's great advice. And it is a reminder that uh, we have a new prayer area there in the back. Did you see it when you came in? This is where you all nod your heads. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. Yeah, there's a candle back there. And uh, just, uh, you know, as the Lord is speaking to you, uh, whether that's through the prayers of the people or through a song or however the Lord is speaking to you, what a wonderful opportunity that is to just go back to the prayer area and say, would you pray with me? 
the Lord is speaking to me about this. So it's not just things that have been going on in our lives through the week. It's how the Lord is speaking to you uh, as, we, as we worship together and as we, we look into His Word. I'm sure there's more, but I'm going to carry on. A number of years ago, um, Nike, the shoe company, developed an ad that captured a philosophy of life in a single phrase, and that phrase was, just do it. Um, I suppose, uh, I suppose uh, most of us have seen those uh, ads. Uh, the ads feature uh, athletes facing obstacles and confronting the limits of their willingness to go on. Um, I believe the following ad was based on a candid photo of my uh, son. One more there, Luke. There, there. I think that's probably a picture of my son. Uh, I don't know who came up with the uh, Nike ad campaign, but I wonder if they'd been reading James chapter 1 when Just Do It popped into their head. James, uh, we have seen, is, uh, was the brother of Jesus. He was the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. His letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was probably written to Jewish believers who were scattered uh, by the persecution that followed the martyring of Stephen. And James knew about the challenges and the issues in their lives, and, and as a pastor, he writes to them about it. And this first chapter, um, as you, if you glance at it um, superficially, it, it's, it's easy to think that it's a whole bunch of different topics. But I think we began to see last week that um, it is one unified argument and it starts with this proposition about God's purpose in trials in verse 2, and then it returns to our perseverance in trials in verse 12, and that is one of those hints that tells us, oh, this is all about how we deal with trials. So when you recognize the unity of the chapter, of what he is writing to us, it helps us to understand what he's saying. For example, verses 9 through 11 uh, are not a change of topic. Uh, he's describing the paradox that finances have on our ability to endure trials. The high position of the poor is that they've developed perseverance, but the faith of the rich may be mostly untested, and so they are likely to wither like a wildflower in the sun when they are faced with real trials. So James has a central thesis for us and it's found in verse 22, which is part of our passage this morning, when it says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. To use Nike's phrase, just do it. Don't just listen to what God says. Don't just talk about what God says. Just do it. Let your actions match your words. And we, we ended last week by talking about the fact that if James wanted to talk about being doers of the Word, uh, why does he begin by talking about trials? What's the connection? And my answer was this, trials can become an excuse to delay doing. We justify ourselves to ourselves and to others saying, well, I've just got too much on my plate or life's too hard right now. That justification is exactly the self-deception James is talking about when he says, don't merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
The life's too hard excuse allows us to deceive ourselves into postponing obedience for an easier time. So if we do not focus, as James says, on how God uses trials in our life to consider it joy when we face trials because God uses them to mold and mature us, we are likely to turn them into an excuse for inaction, inaction. But this is not the only justification that we use to avoid doing what God says. And James now comes to what I believe is a second excuse that we use for delaying obedience. As we come to verse 13, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. When you aren't doing what you believe you should be doing, you still have to live with yourselves, friends. And James is going to address a number of failings in the actions of the people he's writing to. They were discriminating against the poor. They were cutting each other with their tongues. They were worshiping the goodies of this world. Their problem was not a lack of information. We need to catch that. Their problem was that they, their problem wasn't that they didn't know that what they were doing was disobedient, that it wasn't what God's Word says. Their problem was that they were deceiving themselves by justifying their lack of doing what God says. They were looking here in verse 13 for someone else to blame. And since God is supposed to be in charge, a lot of people try to dump the blame on Him. James is confronting a second excuse for inaction, trying to put the responsibility for sin and failure on God. This is the, it's not my fault, excuse. If God is all-powerful and in control of all things, then temptation must come from Him too, right? If God is allowing these trials in my life, then He's the one who's tempting me to give up. This perverse logic makes God the source of temptation and thus the source of evil. He's responsible for tempting us, so He must be responsible for causing us to sin. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard an argument that runs that way, but one that I've heard is, well, God must be really perverse because He creates you with these powerful sexual desires uh, that are longing to be unleashed, and then He says, don't do it. The implication is that God is playing games with you because He causes you to be tempted. I think that in our highly sexualized society, Sexual purity is a huge challenge. But you know, God doesn't forbid sex outside of marriage to frustrate people. He does so because He loves us and He knows us. Sex was God's idea and He knows it was a, has great power to draw people together or to destroy and harm them. God is not just speaking to us about the morality of sexual behavior. He is speaking about the wisdom of it. Do you get that? Christians often fall into a trap of seeing everything as right and wrong, as moral. 
a lot of times when God says stuff to it, he's also saying it for our good. He is speaking wisdom to us. And so attempts to blame God for temptation raise all kinds of theological issues that theologians have debated for centuries. Like, what is the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? And how can God be in control and still allow us to choose? And frankly, James doesn't care about any of that stuff. His answer is blunt and to the point. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He's saying, don't try and put your stuff on God. God is absolutely pure and good and cannot be tempted by evil, so don't try to make him the source of your temptation. And, and I think that sometimes getting into those kinds of uh, theological debates about the, will of, you know, the free will of man and the sovereignty of God and all that, sometimes intellectualizing or theologizing about things is a way to avoid stuff. To, to keep stuff at a, at a distance so that you don't have to face up to it. But James just cuts through that stuff. James, just as James told us what's really going on when we're surrounded by trials in the first 12 verses, now he tells us what's really going on when we are tried by all kinds of temptation. The real source of temptation, he says, is our own desires. He says, each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. We see something we want and we desire it. We are enticed and dragged away. I don't know about you, but friends, I need to own my own junk. I need to face up to stuff in my life that is not honoring to God. And I need God to save me. Now, I, I know we hear that all the time, but I want you to hear what I'm trying to say. I need God not just to save me from sin and take me to heaven someday. I need Him to save me today. I need Him to save me from me. I don't just need him to save me from Satan. I do need him to save me from Satan. Or from guilt. I need him to save me from me. From my best intentions. I need God to save the church from me. Do, do you understand? We see so much chaos in churches around, friends. You know what that is? That is people trying their best to love one another. And we're tearing each other up. You understand that the Christian life is impossible? You need God to rule and reign in your life in order to love one another the way he desires. I need God to save me from my need to be appreciated. From my need to be respected, from my need to be in control. Do you understand that I'm talking here about emotional maturity, emotional self-awareness? 
like this is stuff that the church has not really paid attention to. Many people live in emotional immaturity. They're emotionally unaware of how their need for approval or their fear of failure because they faced some devastating thing in the past is now controlling their behavior today. Or their need to control drives they're doing. You understand there's a difference between wanting to be in control and needing to be in control? Do you understand the difference? I'm looking for you to go, yes, I get it. Yes. Spiritual maturity and emotional maturity are intimately linked, friends. The partiality that James is going to talk about in the church in James chapter 2 raises all kinds of questions about people who have a need for respect and so they like hanging out with the rich people because it makes them look like they're cool and you know what I'm talking about? If I'm a needy person, if God hasn't healed down in the core of me, it affects the way I behave whether I think so or not. I don't understand why I do the things I do sometimes. Boyfriends, that is a that is a alarm bell ringing that you are not in touch with what's going on on the inside. Why does this situation make me afraid? Okay, I'm just going to tell you. I might as well confess. You want to know something that makes me really, really anxious? Children's Christmas programs. Like, uh, you know, I'm a pastor of a church and I'm hanging out in the back ready to dash out the door. What's with that? I suspect. I didn't go to church much as a kid. I, I do remember one time being dressed up as an angel with these little fluffy wings at a, in a choir. But, friends, there's something going on on the inside that makes me so, it's, it's not rational. Do you get it? And we do the same things when we're in situations where we're not in control. Oh, I'm starting a whole new sermon. I'm going to stop right there. God desires for us to grow up emotionally. Spiritual maturity and emotional maturity are intimately linked. And it affects how we love one another on our being doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. Emotional self-awareness is a vital part of spiritual formation. One of our strategic initiatives is to develop and implement a program of spiritual formation. And I'll tell you, I think an important part of that is to teach people simple steps in growing more aware of their emotions and how those emotions are affecting their behavior. And we need to ask God to open our eyes to stuff and to heal the hurts and the wounds and the neediness inside. James uses the metaphor of conception birth, and development to describe the growth of desire is like a baby conceived inside us until it gives birth to an act of sin and the sin starts to grow up and it gets stronger in our lives until it conceives and gives birth to death. I think that what he is describing here or saying is the grandchildren of our evil desire is our own destruction. That 
it can easily become a pattern in our lives. Now we're told elsewhere in Scripture that the wages of sin is death. But we don't die instantly when we sin, so what do we mean? Well, I think he's talking about the long-term consequences of deceiving yourself, of delaying doing, and blaming God for our temptations and saying, it's not my fault. It's an easy way to excuse ourselves from facing ongoing failure in sin. If we succeed in deceiving ourselves and excusing our sin, I think we are setting ourselves up for a pattern of sin and giving ourselves over to sinful desires. What does it say in Hebrews? It calls it uh, the easily besetting sin. Let us lay aside the weights and the sin that so easily besets us. You know what? I think all of us have certain sins that beset us. And a life lived in rebellion to God will ultimately result in death. The test in Scripture of whether you are saved or not is, um, and whether you are forgiven or not, is not, did you pray a prayer to receive Jesus? It is always a life being transformed by Jesus. It's not perfection, but 1 John 1, 6 says, if you claim to have fellowship with God and yet continually walk in the darkness or sin, you're lying, and you're not living by the truth. And 1 John 3, 6 says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. God is saying, there is a transforming impact of Christ in your life, and if you are not being transformed, that is a call to wake up and say, God, I, I need you to come and transform me. This thing has got a grip on my life. James is warning people that a pattern of not doing what God's Word says and giving yourself over to your sinful desires and then excusing it by blaming God for temptation can lead to your eternal destruction. Many people do feel guilt over being tempted, but I would say temptation is not sin. The fact that you are tempted is just a sign that you're alive and breathing. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and women, right? It's what you do with it, that desire, that thought. Now, James begins to move in a slightly different direction in the next verse, verse 16, when he says, don't be deceived my dear brothers and sisters, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He is moving from the deception, the self-deception of, uh, of blaming God, of it's not my fault. He's moving to a lie behind that lie now when he says don't be deceived. He's getting to a greater underlying deception, a greater lie. It is a foundational issue we need to settle in our minds. Is God good? You see, once we have been deceived to believe that God is tempting us, then we are readily deceived into thinking, well, maybe he's not a good God. 
when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden? What was his strategy? His strategy was to get them to question God's goodness. Oh, did, did, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said, but Satan is implying that God is not good because he's holding out on them. You see, once we doubt God's goodness, then we stop listening to what he said. Do you hear me? If I can't trust that God is good, why would I listen to what he says? And then the next step is we start looking out for ourselves. Especially if you're facing difficulties. And the evil one will quickly whisper in your ear whenever you face trials or tragedy or temptation. Uh, why, why, why did God let this happen to you? I, I thought God was supposed to be good. Uh, why would God create you with these desires and then tell you not to do it? Uh, is God holding out on you? Is he playing games with you? Aren't you missing out on what life is really supposed to be about? Maybe God isn't as good as he says he is. James answers the question of God's goodness in four ways, friends. First, he makes a declaration that God is good. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. God does not give evil gifts, dear friends. And I say that knowing that many of you are facing great difficulties in your life. Perhaps tragedy. God is a source of good. Now, when I say that, we, we, have, to, we have to pay attention to that. Because there is something, this is something that I think we have to accept by faith. It is something revealed in Scripture, but it's not something that you can easily verify by looking for evidence in the world. Our world is a mixed bag of good and evil that is wrapped in no-name packaging. There's no satanic label attached to evil, nor a Jehovah brand clearly seen exclusively on what appears to be good. Jesus warns us of wolves in sheep's clothing, and Satan is said to be an angel of masquerading as an angel of light. We often think of going to church as being a good thing. The reality is some churches are toxic places. There are some things in the world that can only be accurately understood and seen through what God has revealed in His Word. And one of the things Scripture is clear about is that God is good. Secondly, James says that not only is God good, but He's also constant. He describes every good and perfect gift coming down from above from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God doesn't change. He doesn't give us good gifts one day and temptation the next. God is constant. You can count on His goodness because He is not fickle. He doesn't have good days and bad days. Anybody here have good days and bad days? 
You can say amen if you want. <laughs> he doesn't treat you nice one time and then jerk your chain for fun the next. Thirdly, James gives us an illustration of God's constancy and goodness. He says, um, he calls God the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. This is a reference to the fact that, the, that God is the creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And like the sun, he is a constant source of light. Everything else may be changing relative to the sun. And their shadows move and change in length, but the light doesn't change. God doesn't change, and his goodness doesn't change. He is always a good God, and he doesn't play games with us, and he doesn't arbitrarily decide one day it would be fun to tempt believers. He always acts in harmony with his character. And finally, James gives us an example of God's goodness, a specific evidence of God's goodness. He says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of all that he has created. James is pointing us to a great example of God's goodness to us. He has given us new birth through the word of truth. God gave us his word which leads us to faith in Christ and to spiritual birth. But spiritual birth here is not the end in itself. He says there is a purpose. He, he, gave, he chose to give us his word um, to give us, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Why? So that we might be a kind of first fruit of all that he has created. Time out. First fruit is Bible slang. It's Bible code words. It's an insider vocabulary. It has a specific meaning. How many of you, I know this isn't a rural church, how many of you have grown a garden? I'm looking for hands here. Oh, there's a few. Some of you not. Okay. So when you grow a garden, what happens when the first crops are coming off? You're right out there picking, right? And, and, and why is the first part of the crop the best? I don't know, but it is, right? Like, you leave the corn on the cob too long, it gets a little tough. You know, the, the, the beans, the last part of the beans aren't, aren't quite as sweet and fresh as those first ones. Friends, um, the first part of the harvest was the best quality and a foretaste of all that was yet to come. And from the first fruit of the harvest, the Jews were supposed to bring an offering, a thank offering to God. And when were the Jews supposed to bring this thank offering of first fruit? Anybody know? The Feast of Pentecost, also called the day of first fruit. What was the day of Pentecost? The day that God chose to pour out his Holy Spirit on us as a first fruit of our relationship with him. God gave us new birth through the word of truth 
and the Holy Spirit so that we might become a kind of first fruit of all that he has created. That we might be transformed into the best of all that he has created. That our lives might be a foretaste of what is still to come. And that our lives would be a thank offering to him for all that he has done. It's talking about the reality of God in us and transforming us into a foretaste of eternity for, for us now and for others to get a taste of. We're first fruit, friends. Or at least that's God's intention. And that is part of his goodness. And if that ain't good, I don't know what is. This example leads us to the importance of God's word. He says he did this by choosing to give us the word of truth. Hmm. The importance of God's word here is that it is a means to transform our lives, which is the central theme of this book. If God gave us life through the word of God for our good, then maybe we ought to be listening for our good and do what it says. The word of God is a prime example of the good gifts that he has given us. Now we need to pause when we come to verses 19 and 20. Because almost always when we read verses 19 and 20, we pull it out of the context and we treat it as though it's a change of topic. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. We tend to think that those verses are talking about our interpersonal relationships. And it certainly applies there. But that's not the context of the passage. What has James been talking about just before? He's not talking about interpersonal relationships. He's talking about our relationship with God. This passage is about preparing ourselves to listen to God's word. And we know that because the context both before and after is the word of God. The verses before are telling us about the goodness of God's word that is transforming us into a first fruit of all that God has created. It's evidence of his goodness to us. And the verses which come after are about our response to God's word. They talk about how we respond to God's word by getting rid of evil in our lives and humbly accepting the word of God planted in you, which is able to save you. So I believe that the meaning of verses 19 and 20, the intended meaning, is primarily about our preparedness, our ready to hear, our readiness to hear what God says. He is saying, look, God has given you his good word so that you might become transformed into his first fruit. So don't you think you ought to pay attention here and be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger when you're coming to God's word to hear what he has to say to you? Friends, if we are mad at God for trials, or we're trying to blame God, for our temptations, our reaction when we come to God's word is we're not really listening. We're telling him 
what's his problem is. We tend to do most of the talking, airing our opinions and our self-justifications, and we are blaming God for the trials and temptations he has allowed in our lives. James is talking to us about being doers of the word, friends. And he's saying, look, if you're carrying all this stuff, here's how you're going to react. <laughs> you're going to be slow to listen, quick to talk, and quick to get angry with God. Reactions reveal what's inside us. Reactions reveal what we believe. If we deceive ourselves into believing our own justifications for inaction, we will not be ready to hear what God has to say. And that anger is never going to produce the first fruit kind of life that God intends for us. So James has counsel for us. He says, get rid of the evil that you've been trying to justify and excuse. Humble yourselves, and I don't know if I can say this here, shut up and listen to what God has to say to you. Because what God has to say is for our good. It is one of his good and perfect gifts from above. And if we do not renounce the sin in our lives, it will deafen us from hearing God. We can't just pick and choose what parts of God's will we're going to accept. We can't expect to hear what God has to say to us in his word if we aren't willing to obey what he's already said to us. So James' remedy is this. Listening is not enough. To merely listen and not obey always results in self-deception. You choose to believe a lie in order to justify your unwillingness to obey what God says. And so he has an exhortation for us. Be doers of the word. Put it into practice. And then he uses an illustration, and the illustration is um, listening but not obeying is like looking in a mirror <laughs> and seeing the problems. Of course, some of us don't have any problems, but you know what I mean. Seeing the problems, but not doing anything about it. And he says, you know, he's basically just saying how foolish and stupid that is. Why would we look into God's good word, his good gift to us, and not do what he's, what he's telling us? And then he has a promise for us, and that comes in verse 25. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. The person who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom will be blessed. And this blessing is both wisdom for the choices of life and God's active intervention in their lives. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the, the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. Man, I'd like that to characterize my life. How about you? God desires us to immerse ourselves in his word. And he talks about not just glancing at it, but looking intently into the word. This blessing involves an intentional looking. It requires our attention. We have to let it soak in. 
we need to meditate on it and ask God, Lord, how does this apply to my life? Lord, what are you trying to say to me here? That is a subjective part of the faith, friends. But the Holy Spirit is able to pinpoint things in our lives where we need to hear it. James calls the word the perfect law that gives liberty. He's revealing his Jewish orientation there. He doesn't mean just the five books of Moses or even the Old Testament. He has in mind all that God has revealed up to that point by Christ and by the teaching work of the Holy Spirit in the early church. He concludes this chapter by contrasting two different kinds of religious people, two examples of doers. One is negative and one is positive. What does it mean to actually live out our faith is what he's describing. And he says, anyone who considers themselves religious but does not keep a tight rein on their tongue, they deceive themselves. Oh, there's that phrase again. They deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Perhaps a better uh, word in our context is anybody who thinks they're spiritual. Do you know anybody who, you know, yeah, I'm working on my spirituality. James says, if you think you're spiritual but you shoot off your mouth, you're self-deceived. Your religion, your spirituality is a sham. Okay, now I need to be a little careful here, but I think he's saying people that are full of themselves and their own opinions are not in tune with the Holy Spirit. That is not the fruit of the Spirit. And often it involves spiritual-sounding pride. And it often comes out in critiquing everyone else. I don't know about you, but I am guilty as charged on that. I have done that. And I need the Lord to guard my lips. And I need to understand grace in a deeper way so that I am not thinking that I am better than other people and sitting in judgment on them. Then he says, but genuine religion or real spirituality is life-changing and it expresses itself in a love for others and a holiness before God. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. One of the best evidences of the Spirit's work is seen in how we treat people who have the least to offer us in return. I love that this church is involved in the Cloverdale Community Kitchen. Boy, friends, that is a constant reminder to us that there are people all around us with needs and need the touch of God in their lives. I want to conclude James chapter 1 with a paraphrase of James 1. This is Brad's paraphrase. Don't grow bitter when life is hard, but focus on the joy of how God is using it to grow you to maturity a maturity that would never develop on the easy path, 
And if you need wisdom in those hard times, just ask and God will give it to you. But you need to consistently trust Him when you ask for help. People who believe God one minute and doubt the next rarely experience all that God has for them. The poor really have the upper hand in trials because their faith has grown strong in the midst of difficulties. But rich people are more like flowers that fade in the scorching sun. They've not had to endure as much hardship, but God will reward those who stand the test. And don't think when testing comes that God is tempting you. God is not an evil God. He, he doesn't play games with us or tempt us. And He doesn't change from day to day. He only gives what is truly for our good because He is good. For example, he, he chose to give us new life through His Word. If that's true, then we need to be quick to listen to His Word, not always airing our own opinions or growing angry because life is hard. Instead, we need to cleanse our lives of anger and sin that blocks our willingness to accept what He has to say. But merely hearing His Word is not enough. We need to be doers of the Word. People who only hear the Word without acting on it end up fooling themselves into thinking they're okay or that they know better than God. But the reality is that it is the person who does what it says who will be blessed by God. A good example of someone who hears but doesn't do is a person who goes to church, talks a lot about God, but is always shooting off at the mouth cutting and criticizing others. They're only kidding themselves about how spiritual they are. But an example of someone who lives the faith, doing what God says is someone who looks out for the needy and the weak. Lisa, thank you for your prayer for women today. What a perfect example that is. But an example of someone who lives their faith doing what God says is someone who looks out for the needy and the weak and lives a pure life in the midst of a selfish and sexually perverse generation. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, we need you to open our eyes and to prepare our hearts and give us a willingness to stop fooling ourselves, and to pay attention to what you say. And Lord, you're calling us to look intently into your word, to not merely glance, but to reflect, to pray, to meditate on the things that you are trying to say to us. And so, Lord, we are asking you to grow us in this walk of obedience, this path of doing because worship, love for you is everything that we do. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.